What is the Marie Antoinette syndrome? And what future Roman emperor was kidnapped by pirates when he was 25 years old? <laughs> Good Answers time. to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity. The Marie Antoinette syndrome. Uh-huh. Mm. Take, take a guess. I want you to think about it. Well, is it the let-them-eat-cake syndrome? Is it something like that? No, no. What is the Marie Antoinette syndrome, then? Well, it's not that common. But during times of extreme stress, your hair can turn white overnight. Okay, I've heard of that, but I didn't know it was true. Well, it apparently happened to her, the Queen of France, Marie Antoinette, before the morning she walked to the guillotine. That would be a bit stressful. Oh, yes. And then just remember, she and Louis XVI were taken by a mob from Versailles from the palace. You know, they broke uh, into the palace. Yeah. Must have been horrible. Oh, Lord. And you heard of uh, Sir Thomas More? Mm-hmm. His hair turned white overnight in, when he was in the Tower of London. Remember that? The yes. Tower of London? Before his execution. So it happens. Uh, and the good news is that doctors think that sometimes your hair can revert back. They did one study in 2021 that showed a woman, <laughs> this doesn't seem like a big gain to me, but she regained five hairs with color after she took a two-week holiday. How can you find just five hairs and know that they changed well, color? Well, because if your whole head is white and then suddenly, hey, here's some new hair. I suppose. It can grow back under different and unusual circumstances. Well, this is another ancient oriented story. Okay. Even more ancient, actually. What future Roman emperor was kidnapped by pirates when he was 25? It wasn't ancient Roman? What future Roman (laughs) emperor was kidnapped by pirates when he was 25? I don't know that many. Well, just think of one name. Caesar. Julius Caesar. Yes. It was him. (laughs) I I never heard this story. He was the victim of the Mediterranean Sea's pirate problem. They had a pirate problem. (laughs) There's always something, isn't it? In 75 BC, he was a 25-year-old Roman nobleman on his way to Rhodes to study oratory when he was kidnapped. And apparently he wasn't a very good captive. He laughed when the pirates told him they sent his ransom demand at 25 talents. He said if they knew who he was, they would have asked for twice that. (laughs) So they asked for more. So he sent his own ransom. And then he sent his entourage out to gather the money to pay for this. Meanwhile, he bossed the pirates around. He shushed them to be quiet when he was sleeping. Oh, for God. He made them listen to speeches and poems he wrote while in captivity. And he also told them from time to time he would have them all crucified. And oh. guess what? They laughed at him for that. And he did, didn't he? Yes. yes Bad sir. for them. 38 days passed. Caesar's ransom arrived. He was set free. But instead of going home, he raised a naval force, went back to the island. And when he had the pirates arrested, the Roman governor wasn't enthusiastic about punishing these. So he went to the prison himself where they were being held and he had them crucified. Good Lord in heaven. Okay. So don't mess with Julius Caesar even when he's 25 years old. Oh Lord. Okay. I thought that was a good character study. I didn't, I never heard that story before. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously he had a Leadership qualities, uh, not always good. Okay, so Bob, here's something I suspect you'll know, but I'd like to throw you a bone once in a while. Who issued the first credit cards and when? I think that was a, uh, was it a restaurant? It was a dining, dining 
dining card, the dining card, the dining, dining club card, the diners club. Oh, okay. Diners club. Okay, yes, that's the one. Yeah, and the year was. I would say in the 1950s, but uh-huh. maybe I'm wrong. No, you're right. 1950, actually. Before then, gas companies and hotel chains just issued cards that were exclusively good for their services. But in 1949, businessman Frank McNamara was dining at Major's Cabin Grill, a New York City restaurant. Okay. And when the check came, discovered he had no cash. And his, <laughs> that's my grandpa did that once. <laughs> Took, uh, I know guys who've done that before and walked out on their <laughs> dates, too. Yeah, 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 it was. His wallet was in the other suit. And fortunately, McNamara's wife rescued him, but Frank resolved he'd never be embarrassed like that again. Frank McNamara. Uh-huh. So that was his name. And that's why he invented something we have all learned to love and hate, the modern credit card. And that was just for restaurants at that time. Yeah. Soon they expanded it. Yeah. So he expanded it, and it was a, made it a fee-based card that was good for a large number of totally unrelated businesses. Okay. And soon after that, American Express climbed on board, and Bank AmeriCard, in 1959 now, issued the first bank credit card and called it Visa. Okay, so there we are. And MasterCard came in 1966. Seems like they've always been around. It does, doesn't it? Well, yeah. in most people's lives, they have today, you yeah. know. And just imagine how they paid cash for most things. Imagine that. But to be there <laughs> and to realize, I don't have any cash. Oh, my gosh, how embarrassing. And it was a business dinner. Yeah. That yeah. had to be very embarrassing yeah. for him. Yeah. Okay, so those are the mother of invention there. It mm-hmm. was an embarrassment at a dinner that mm-hmm. created the first credit card. Marcia, what famous Asian language has a Portuguese name? Well, got me there, Bob. Tell me what it is. It's Mandarin Chinese. Really? Yeah, the language itself is known as Putonghua, meaning common speech. The word Mandarin comes from the Portuguese word Mandarim, which Portuguese explorers used to describe Chinese officials during the 16th century. So the rest of the world calls it Mandarin Chinese, but it's a Portuguese name. Oh, there. Chinese don't use that term. Yes. Okay, Bob, you'll like this. Mm-hmm. Why is listening into a private conversation called eavesdropping? Oh, there's a good one. Eavesdropping. Eaves. Okay, did it have anything to do with the eaves of a house, for instance, a design of the eaves, or the eaves of a tree? Yes, the first one. A house. Okay. Uh So people would hear by listening through the attic or something like that? Well, you're dancing around it, shall I say. Well, I'd like to dance around (laughs) it. In medieval times, houses did not have roof gutters to carry off rainwater. Okay. Instead, they have eaves, which protected their mud walls from rain that was dropping off the roof. During sudden downpours, people would take refuge under the eaves to get out of the rain. The mud walls of the houses in those days weren't that thick. So if you were standing under the eaves, you could often hear what people were saying inside the house. Oh, no kidding. And you became a... Eavesdropper. (laughs) Dropping in. How interesting. Uh So it came from the structure of the houses. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed that. I wouldn't have guessed it either. Okay, that's good. Well, and nice to know that it relates directly to the word being part of a house, a structure, Uh eavesdropping. So they would hang around. (laughs) Get out of the rain. And Uh then, oh, as long as I'm here, I'll see what Harry and Mildred are talking about. Oh, they're having a problem. They're having a fight (laughs) over there. And it's over Jolene. I didn't know that Harry liked Jolene. Oh, good Lord. Is that a medieval name, I don't think so, no. Okay, all right. Okay, Marcia, when was the first movable type with metal letters made? Ah. 
Now we think about Gutenberg, right? Yeah. That was 1450, but he wasn't the original guy. Oh, was it before then? Yes. Oh, well then I don't know. I'll, it, I'll, I'll give you a year, okay? Okay. 1353. Wow, you're not too far <laughs> off. It goes back to Asia, where a lot of the early inventions were, but they were kind of provincial in terms of not getting out to the rest of the world. But the Chinese were the first to use movable type. They had ceramic and wood movable type, that is, letters made of ceramic materials mm-hmm. or wood, by 1040 A.D. Oh, my. But... Movable metal type with individual letters made of metal, what people associate with Gutenberg, was actually invented by the Koreans. That was in 1234 when the first books known to have been printed in metallic type were published in Korea. So you can thank the Koreans for metal type. I'll drop them a line. Okay. (laughs) We have a quote from a Korean king. In 1403, he remarked to his courtiers around him, and this is recorded somewhere, if the country is to be governed well, it's essential that books are read widely. It's my desire to cast copper type so we can print as many books as possible. So that was 50 years before Gutenberg. That was advanced thinking, huh? Now, the interesting thing about Gutenberg is his job was not as a printer. You know what his profession was? Uh, Dancer. He was a goldsmith. (laughs) So he was used to working with metal, too. So that's where it came from. He was a metallurgist. You know, he's a person who is a smith working with metal, Mm -hmm. just like the Koreans who did the first movable type. I didn't know that. I didn't either. All right, Forbes magazine, Bob. Mm -hmm. They did an article about a survey done by Big 7 Travel. They surveyed 1.5 million people and asked them to name their top destinations for their bucket list. Okay. Okay. They found most people had a list of 11 places and hoped to visit at least seven before they kicked the bucket. So, can you name any of the top 10 bucket list destinations? It's These are mostly cities. Okay, Paris, France. I just think that's a romantic capital most it, people think of. It is, and it was. Uh, um, that's number seven. Beijing, China. Uh, not on the top 10. Hmm. Okay, London. Uh, that's uh, not on the top 10. Okay, are there any parks or landmarks or uh, you know natural features that people mention? No, it, there's only one place in the United States on the top 10, and I wouldn't have guessed this one, New Orleans. Really? Yeah. Huh. It's number two. Well, it has a, a certain distinction for people. Yeah, because it's so unique. Yeah. And so number one was Bali, Indonesia. Because of their beaches, volcanoes, Komodo dragons, all things that you and I are just crazy about. (laughs) (laughs) I love the Komodo dragons. Uh, Number two is New Orleans. Three is Cary Island. Cary Ireland. Okay. And they have perfect little small towns there and the Killarney National Park there. Number four, Marrakesh, Morocco. Number five, Sydney, Australia. The Maldives in the Indian Ocean. Paris, number seven, Cape Town, South Africa. Dubai, and number 10 is Bora Bora, French Polynesia. Hmm, Bora Bora. Yeah. I never think of that. Those are like old names for me. So there aren't a lot on this list that you and I would uh, find absolute must-do before we do the... (laughs) What did I hear a comedian say? My bucket list? I changed the first letter of that. (laughs) 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 Okay, Bob, you got one? All right, Marcia, what is the best-selling novel of all time? Now, this is in terms of the number of copies published and circulated. Is this one I know? It's one you know, but I I was surprised this is considered the best-selling novel of all time. Was it like back in the 1800s? This goes back to 400 years ago. Okay, so (laughs) (laughs) what is it, Bob? 
It is Miguel Cervantes' 1615 work, Don Quixote. Quixote, really? Yes. Its numbers are hard to beat. It's estimated that over the centuries, more than 500 million copies have been sold. Hmm. And that's considered the best-selling novel of all time. Give me, give me a line from one of those songs in Don Quixote. I am I, Don Quixote, the Lord of La Mancha. I love yeah, it. <laughs> the Man of La Mancha, based on that. All right, a couple of quick ones, Bob. Okay. During your life, your hair grows, it falls out and regrows about how many times in your lifetime? Your hair? Yeah. Oh, geez. It grows, falls out. Like, I don't know. I have no idea what it's this a, is. I would have thought it'd been more, but it's 20 times in your lifetime is the average. So only 20 times in your life, you have a new, whole new set of hair. Yeah. When you think about that, that's about every four years. So, you know, yeah. in a general lifetime. Okay. Okay. Here's another quick one. Okay. And we all know uh, how uh, colonies of ants are little worker bees. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what percent of worker ants in a typical colony are just lazy butts? <laughs> so there are actually lazy ants? Yeah, very lazy. These researchers really studied. I know that the ants, we had that one thing about ants getting drunk and their yeah, co-workers yeah. would throw them into water. To yeah. <laughs> so apparently ants have problems. Yes. So there are some ants that don't just don't work out in the colony. Yeah. They, do they get thrown out of the colony then? They, well. If I'll, they don't work? Uh, just give me my answer and then I'll okay, tell you more. I'd say 5%. 5%. No. Research shows that up to 40% of worker ants Ants remain idle while all the other ants do the work. Really? <laughs> Somebody maybe they're just doing something different. It's like your it's like your average office. No, they <laughs> no, they were studied. Biologists with the University of Arizona observing ant colonies in 2015 found that many of the ants seem to slack off doing nothing while other ants perform chores. So I love this. They put a dot on uh, the lazy ones to see what would happen when the lazy ants were removed from their nests if anything changed in the nest and nothing did. But then they did the reverse and left the lazy ants alone without the worker bees and they got to work. So <laughs> Also, they, they were letting other people do their work for them. Yeah. So anyway, after the scientists discovered that the worker bees got to work if the busy guys were gone, they decided that they were not lazy but they were part of a reserve force. Oh, In other words, as the worker bees dropped dead from exhaustion, the lazy bums would step in. So they're not lazy after all. Well, that's their that's their theory. Oh, come but on. But 40% of a nest That's bum, a lot. That is a lot. I, I just can't believe that their 40% of ants aren't working. And did you know that the oldest fossilized ant found in New Jersey, no less, was 92 million years old? <laughs> And he was still working. <laughs> <laughs> and an estimated 20 quadrillion ants are alive today and living in our backyard. That's that's where they all are. <laughs> okay. All right, let's take a break now. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. We're back. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. We do this every week for the Cedarburg Public Library, and then we post it on our, our website, and it goes out over uh, all the podcast platforms. Okay. We have a question here, Marcia, about how much were congressmen originally paid? Now, they were congressmen. They were all men originally. This goes back to 1789. Didn't they work for free? No, they didn't work for free, and only half of them did work, but that's another story. <laughs> that's still the case today. Okay, 1789, members of the United States Congress were paid how much per day? A buck. Six. 
Six dollars. Six a day. times what you thought they were paying. Ah. Approximately nine hundred dollars a year. But that was a lot of money then. You, you bet. say? Yeah. No, not no? really. Oh, okay. Adjusted for inflation, their salaries were only worth thirty thousand dollars a year in today's money. Hmm. So it was not seen as a way to get rich. Or to get famous, okay. you went there to do some work and you yeah. kept your job, you that kept was, your other work. That was the idea. But the first uh, Congress people were paid $6 a day or $90 a year, equivalent to $30,000 a year today. That's according to Britannica.com. All right. If you don't mind, I have one more ant question. Oh, dear God. <laughs> Sorry. So what is unique about the yellow goo ant, also called the colobosis? The colobosis? It lives in Southeast Asia, but the name they give it is the yellow goo ant. The yellow goo ant. <laughs> I never heard of this. Oh, you didn't? Okay, well, you know what's unusual about them? What? They can explode themselves. Oh, no. <laughs> They're tree-dwelling ants, and they build their nests high up in the canopies. And as a last-ditch effort to protect their homes from invaders, they apply pressure to their abdomen, and burst their bodies in self-sacrifice. Good Lord. Yeah, they release a sticky, odorous, and toxic substance that drives away the invaders, and they're they're dead, but their little ant house is still there. Oh, dear God. Just okay, keep that the in last, mind. that's the last ant question of today, I It hope. is. Yes, it is. Okay. Okay, Marsha, what mobile technology does this describe, okay? Uh-huh. It's a word processor. It operates in the uh, glacial cold or torrid heat or on turbulent flights or during tumultuous sailings. It has a continuous power supply. Again, this is a word processor. It needs no battery or electrical outlet. It offers instantaneous printouts in two colors without peripherals. While using it, you never get a pesky email, text, or Slack message from an editor. You can spill your coffee on it, knock it off the desk, or stop a bullet with it, and it'll keep working. What is that mobile technology, that word processor? It's a typewriter. <laughs> That's the description of a portable typewriter. When you think about it, yeah, that was the description in the New York Times of a royal typewriter that they've added to their museum, and it belonged to a former reporter. But I thought that was just so cute. Yeah. I mean, it really describes it. Yeah, it was. Uh, we still Do we still have our typewriters? We have typewriters. And we have an, I think we have an old royal like that, too, uh, yeah. as well. Yeah. I think my Underwood is gone. It was just too dang heavy. But the portable typewriter they have in their possession was uh, Lester Bernstein wrote the initial bulletins for the Times Square Electric Bulletin Board announcing the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. Yeah. He worked for the Times from 1940 to 1989. His daughter was also a reporter at the Times from 1995 until she retired in 2016, and she left her father's royal typewriter to the Times as a parting gift. Oh, that's cool. I like that. Okay, you might know this one too. The Pony Express mm -hmm. mail service was around for how long? Not long. It was like less than a year, maybe? Was no, it, it was more than a year. 18 months? Yes. Okay, yeah. Bingo. The service was expensive, around $130 in today's dollars for just a half ounce of mail. Did you know that? Wow, that's pretty expensive. There were cheaper alternatives like mail sent by stagecoach or ship, but let's face it, it took a while. So not many people could afford it. And so I bet you know this. Besides being expensive, why did they only last 18 months? I think because the railroads came through. Well, that nope, changed no, it. No, something else. Okay, what was it? Western Union. Oh, telegraphs. The telegraph line introduced a safer, much faster, more reliable way to deliver urgent messages. 
Still, for its brief existence, the Express, the Pony Express, bridged an important communications gap, delivering around 35,000 pieces of mail. Yeah, 35,000. That's yeah. amazing. All delivered by horse. Yeah. Okay. All right, Marsha, who is America's highest paid public employee these days? Is it the president? Is it a cabinet secretary? Is it a university chancellor? The chancellor. No. Okay. None of those. Oh. Who is it? It's none of the ones you gave me? Uh Uh-uh. Tell me. It is a football coach, a college football coach. What is that a? The University of Alabama's football coach, Nick Saban, his annual salary averages out to $11 million a year. That's absurd. Making him the highest paid public employee in the United States. So you're a public employee if you're a university Football coach, coach. really? Yeah, Yeah, well, a college football coach at the University of Alabama. It's not a private school. All right, interesting. We talked about a lot of different animals so far in this show today. Uh We talked about ants. Apparently too much for your taste. Ants infinitum, I might add. (laughs) Okay, how big was the boom in pets during the pandemic? All right, do I give you, what do you want to, how do I quantify? What's the percentage of households in the United States that that added a dog or a cat? That added a dog or a how many? I'll say 37%. According to the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, more than 23 million U.S. households, which is nearly one in five, acquired a dog or a cat during the pandemic. So what's the percentage? 20%. One in five. Okay. Yeah, just looking at our, at our nuclear family, both kids got uh, animals during the COVID. Interesting. That's pretty amazing. I've got another question here about a famous transportation innovation. This was a deal that was sealed during an Alaskan fishing trip. If you build it, I will buy it. What was the transportation innovation that launched? It was in the mid-60s. If you build it, I will buy it. Two men fishing. Two men fishing. William Allen is one, and the other one was Juan Trippe. I don't know what, I will buy it if you build it. It wasn't like the Segway or something. This is no, before that. No, even okay. bigger than that. Yeah. Uh, okay, I've got the answer. The right. two men were William Allen, the president of the Boeing Airplane Company, uh-huh. and Juan Trippe, the head of Pan American Airways. And Allen had just finished describing his concept for a brand new plane, three times bigger than any jetliner. It would move more people faster and cheaper than any plane before. If you build it, I'll buy it, said Trippy. If you buy it, I'll build it, replied Alan. And the answer was the Boeing 747. Go, okay. And it opened air flight to more millions of people than anything else. It reduced the cost of travel. Uh, That's the that reason right? you're flying today is because this revolutionized the airlines. How many uh, Boeing 747s were manufactured? 1,574. And the last one just had its ceremonial send-off in January 2023, 53 years after the first Pan American passenger flights between New York and London. So in 53 years, they assume that 6 billion passengers have flown 60 billion nautical miles on 747s. That's the equivalent of 144,000 trips to the moon and back. Okay. I just think that's fascinating. And uh, because now uh, we don't need planes that big anymore. They they can be more fuel efficient if they're smaller and different engines and everything. But that made a big difference. I mean, you've been on those planes before. Yeah, what year again was that? It started in 1966. But these are the planes you go down. There's two aisles and there's seats all across, you know, big, big jets. Way too big for my taste. (laughs) 
these are okay. the ones that go across the ocean. So yeah. it was the big pajama party in the sky, I yeah. called it. All right. <laughs> All right. We never watched the program, Bob, but everyone thinks, including us, of Angela Lansbury as Jessica Fletcher in Murder, She Wrote, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Want to guess what two famous people turned down that role before they hired Jessica? Was one a man? Were they thinking of it as a man's role, too? No, they were both women. Okay, so it's a two famous actresses. I will bet, I'm just thinking of Catherine Hepburn probably was offered it. No. No? Was mm-hmm. it somebody else like that? No. Okay, then I don't know the answer, Marsh. Doris Day. Really? <laughs> and Edith Bunker, Jean Staple. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. It's nearly impossible to imagine anyone but Angela Lansbury playing the part, but she wasn't a shoe-in for the job. Doris Day couldn't do it, and Edith Bunker declined, partly because she didn't feel ready after All in the Family to oh, jump yeah. into another sitcom. She would have been busy a long time, eh? Jean Stapleton said, Every time I saw Angela during those years she was playing Murder, She Wrote, she would say, thank you, Jean. <laughs> so Lansbury thanked Jean yeah. for letting her have yeah. the Every role. Every time they ran into each other, she'd say, thank you, Jean. And they were both great <laughs> stage actors yeah. before they became big on television. Okay. What percent of American cowboys were black? Oh, I I heard this was a this is a deceptive one, and there were a lot of cowboys that were black back in the day. I think there were like thirty percent of American cowboys were African American, weren't well, they? You're not far off. Twenty five percent. Twenty five percent. And that stunned me. You know, I thought when we see them in movies and TV programs today, I always go, I'll bet there weren't that many black cowboys back then. But nay, there were. Yes, and they were taken out of the picture by filmmakers. They didn't want to depict black yeah, well, cowboys. Those days are over. Yes. When wealthy American enslavers moved to Texas, first it was a part of Spain, then Mexico, but in the early 1800s to start cattle ranches, they brought enslaved people with them in droves. But after the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 that made slavery illegal, these ranchers started having a lot of trouble with runaway cattle. (laughs) So, Mm. So the recently freed black Americans who had been enslaved on cattle ranches They were highly skilled in wrangling, and they were suddenly in high demand. Hmm. So many of them took up the cowboy trade while they faced high levels of discrimination at the ranches. In towns and on the plains alike, they forged tight bonds with their white and Mexican colleagues. So they were known and they were uh, trusted co-workers. And appreciated. Among their co-workers there, they were okay. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a great great tidbit. 25%. One in four. You want me to finish up with my quote? Sure. All right. It's by Bill Murray. Okay. The best way to teach your kids about taxes is by eating 30% of their ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) This is how it works. I think that's an excellent illustration. It is good, yeah. And it is tax time, so. There we go. It is all relevant. So much fun. All right. All right. Well, that's it for today. We hope you've enjoyed the show, and we invite you to submit any questions or thoughts you might have by going to our website, theofframp.show, and uh, scrolling all the way down to contact us. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia here on The The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.